Coming up on this episode of The Courage to Change. What happened in your past to lead to your present? And so that's what I started writing about. And I realized, oh yeah, there was, you know, a cousin who tried to molest me and I lost a piece of my voice and myself there. Then there was a high school teacher who stalked me and I lost another piece of my voice and myself in that process. I was raped when I was 23 and I knew I couldn't turn to anyone for help because no one would have the tools to help me. Hello, beautiful people. Welcome to the Courage to Change a Recovery podcast. My name is Ashley Loblasigame, and I am your host. Today, we have Rima Zaman. Rima Zaman is an award-winning writer and speaker. She is the author of the memoir, I Am Yours, and the forthcoming dystopian novel, Paramita. She is the creator and lead writer of the TV show, Snap. Born in Bangladesh and raised in Thailand, she now lives in Portland, Oregon, with her rescue chihuahua, Fia the Fierce. You can find her at Rima Zaman and RimaZaman.com. This episode was incredible. I enjoyed every moment of talking to Rima. We traded phone numbers. We are now fast friends. I highly, highly recommend her work going and watching her TED Talk on resilience and grit because she has quite a bit of it and her ability to describe situations and, and create narrative is is unlike any I've ever experienced. I don't want to give you too much from our interview because it speaks for itself. So episode 128, let's do this. You're listening to The Courage to Change, a recovery podcast. We're a community of recovering people who have overcome the odds and found the courage to change. Each week, we share stories of recovery from substance abuse, eating disorders, grief and loss, childhood trauma, and other life-changing experiences. Come join us no matter where you are on your recovery journey. Well, I very, very excited, Rima, to have you. I appreciate your time. Thank you for being here. Thank you so much, Ashley. It is an absolute honor and pleasure. You're very kind. I was going over your notes. And one thing that I want to have you start with is your background. So your parents were an arranged marriage, which is not something that is as common anymore, but apparently um, has the same success rates as our current uh, marital success rates in America that arranged marriages and, and our own choices have the same success, interestingly. But anyway, I wanted you to give us some background. What was, what was it like? What was your, um, your family, the culture in your home growing up? Thank you, Ashley. That's a great place to start at the beginning. Uh, yes. So for everyone tuning in, my name is Rima Zaman. I was born in Bangladesh and raised primarily in Hawaii and Thailand. And I, um, I'm the eldest daughter of an arranged marriage. My parents got married in 1982 and I was born in 1983. And they're both highly educated, college educated, you know, masters, PhD people. But, you know, they hadn't met. And, I mean, they had like a few chaperone dates prior to their wedding. And then um, 
we embarked on our life together. And my brother was born four years after me. And my sister is 11 years younger than myself. And we were all born in different places. Soon after I was born, my father uh, started doing his doctorate, his PhD in Hawaii. So that's where we moved, the three of us, a tiny little immigrant family. And we moved to the States and we were there for four years. And that's when my brother was born. And I remember, and then we moved to Thailand when I um, was six years old and my sister was born there. And we would spend a lot of time in Bangladesh. We would spend the summers with my grandparents as well as uh, winter, winter break as well. And growing up in Thailand and Bangladesh, I just became very accustomed to as well as sensitive to the sexism and racism, but most of all the sexism, the misogyny and the constant power imbalance between men and women. And um, that was the kind of dynamic I was modeled where my father was the leader of the household and the leading opinion in the household. And my mother and the rest of us, the, the rest of us kids, we all orbited around his voice and his needs and his decisions. And so, yeah, and my, my mom and I, we talk about how I was born with this riotous free will mm-hmm. and voice. And I started speaking up on behalf of both of us and all of us where, you know, when I was around nine years old, I announced to my father that I would never have an arranged marriage. Mm. And, um, yeah, because that I could, <laughs> he, he was quite accepting of it, but I remember him being like, I'm so proud of you, but also it went against everything he had been taught too. Right. So we always had, and right. And I want to say like, he and I have a, an amazing relationship now, but it took a long time because he had to unlearn a lot of his conditioning and I had to come into my voice and my power in my own way. And the first way I did that was by accessing anger to validate my mom's anger, actually, which she had kept silent for years. Yeah. So I started speaking up and speaking back during puberty as many young girls do. And I started doing anything that I could to exert a semblance of power and agency. So I cut off all my hair when I was 15 years old. I got eight piercings in my ears. I got my first tattoo without anyone's permission. All of the things that I could possibly do to show uh, autonomy, especially Mm -hmm. like body autonomy. And, you know, I was growing up in this really conservative private school in Thailand where we were supposed to be these perfect children who were going to follow the footsteps of their parents to, you know, just be in these traditional patriarchal marriages and households. And uh, yeah, and, and I started getting into getting my hands into any kind of art I could. So visual art, painting, drawing, sculpting, jewelry making, and singing, music, dance, but most of all theater. Because when I took on the role of another character, I was given permission and encouragement to voice things that I wasn't allowed to at home. Things like anger and sorrow and, you know, speaking back against society in a way that was looked down upon in the classroom or looked down upon at home. I could do so through the context of a character. And I would be applauded for it and validated for it. And I was 
the young star. I was the star of every single high school musical and play. But most of all, it wasn't about the applause. It was about having a place where I was allowed to be angry. I was allowed to be sad. I was allowed to speak my mind. Hmm. But through the script of another character. Right. And mainly through scripts written by straight white men. <laughs> I didn't piece this part of the narrative together until I was in my 30s. But so then I graduated high school. I got a full, I got a scholarship to the United States. I came here to Skidmore College and I was going to be a theater and women's studies double major. And I graduated early because I'm, you know, I was raised to be perfect and, and, and earn love and validation through that. And then I moved to uh, New York and I got agents. I got uh, acting agents as well as modeling agents And I went to audition after audition and I was applauded and hired for being patriarchy's poster child of like a perfect demure little ingenue, you know, female ingenue. And um, every single role was like this different version of like a girlfriend or a supporting character to a man's heroic journey. And then I fell into that kind of relationship cycle as well. Because if that's what you're trained to excel at, like those were the only scripts I knew were to be someone's girlfriend or someone's model wife or someone's supporting character to their heroic journey. And in my mid-20s, I fell into an abusive relationship without even realizing I was. I should also say that all through this time, to no surprise of anyone, I was severely anorexic because instead of expressing my emotions or any kind of anger I felt toward seeing the sexism around me growing up or toward me, I just uh, internalized everything. I had been stalked by a few sexual predators in my early teens and and my childhood as well as teenage years. And when I wasn't given the protection that I asked for, again, I just internalized that anger. And the only form of expressions I had was actually art and anorexia. Because it's the only place of control that I could find, where I could that I could exert in a in a world that made me feel continually powerless. Yeah, yeah. And you, so you've used a couple words over and over again that I want to that I want to keep kind of hone in on anger. So that was one that I've heard a lot, and it's and I, you know, we you you've gotten us to early twenties, but I heard about anger as a young girl as early as nine, right? And saying, no, I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to comply. And interestingly, you you lived in these various places, but you lived for four years in the United States where maybe you were shown a different culture. You know, I'm just guessing maybe that it gave you an idea like, oh, not everybody lives with within, you know, some people have more equality than others, depending on where they are. Can you tell me about the anger piece? Why, why was there so much anger? And you said not protected at a certain point and then more anger. Can you talk to me a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for asking me to elaborate on that. Um, You know, in the early years, I was in Hawaii from ages two to six. So I didn't really process a sense of difference. If anything, I process a sense of difference in terms of skin color and race and economic status as a young child in kindergarten, preschool and kindergarten. But sexism didn't really, I didn't really start picking up on that until we were in Thailand and I could see just how 
my mom was always really quiet and nervous about making her opinions be heard. And my father had a temper and he was very brooding and moody. And so we just all operated around his moods and trying to keep him happy and calm. And the way I knew how to do that best was, yes, to, to figure out his moods and, his, um, and how to, to make him happy and perform for him. And also through like being perfect at school and earning love through that. And um, so I was, you know, taught a form of con- conditional love, which is love, love earned through a specific level of perfection and meeting someone's approval and standards and often, often very punishing standards. Mm. And um, so you said, you asked about protection and it being denied. Yeah. So when I was 11 years old, a cousin um, tried to molest me. And I remember knowing that like making this story uh, known would cost, cost so much pain, like to my mom. So I actually never told her until I was an adult. And I also knew on some level as a child that she didn't have a voice of her own. So I shielded her from the pain of, knowing this, but also not being able to stop it. And yeah, and I did seek protection in other ways, but again, it came down to like shaking up the family or just silencing this story and keeping me away from the cousin, but not really punishing him or addressing it. Yeah. Which is, I think it's, I mean, now after a post me too world, like everyone has knowledge and tools about like what to do. And we have our scripts that we've like rehearsed of what to do in these situations. And we talk to our kids about it in school, but we're talking about the eighties and we're talking about Bangladesh in the Mm eighties. You know, there was absolutely no social or academic literature on this or knowledge on this. We weren't talking about these things. And that's why, like, I knew that if I couldn't find the tools and protection and empowerment and voice at home, I had to figure it out academically and I had to figure it out through art. And that's why when I came to the States, like I knew already that I wanted to major as a theater and women's studies double major, because it felt like bridging those two together would allow me to have agency and be a voice for myself and to offer art that can be a vehicle for other people's voices. You mentioned anorexia, which is, you know, often a, a, um, you know, a a disease of control and in a, in a, in a chaotic, you know, uncontrollable world life scenario. How did you get that diagnosis? What, what made you, um, you know, I think many of us have different ideas of what anorexic is. Can you tell us about yours? Mine was, I mean, I was just addicted to uh, like punishing levels of exercise and, um, you know, starvation and limiting my, my diet because it was the only place I could really exert autonomy, you know, and I was never formally diagnosed with it, but like I, you know, nobody took me into a hospital and was like, give her a psych exam or anything. It was just very, very obvious. And my parents were like, you're anorexic, you need help. You need to stop. But again, it was like in the nineties in Thailand in uh, where again, there was no access to counseling, but also, in Asian culture, and even now, counseling is seen as something shameful 
And in the same way that like you don't speak of molestation because you have to protect the reputation of the family first and foremost. And so same thing with anorexia. It's seen as like, well, why is the child going through this or why is the person going through this? That brings shame upon the family. And we just didn't even have like knowledge of what to do. And it was just like, stop this behavior. You're killing yourself. Um, eat more. Stop exercising this much. With and I, and I just said like, you know, you're telling me to give up something that brings me social accolades and validation. You're telling me to give up the only sense of power I have in a in a world that continues to threaten and take away my sense of agency. And so I just like you know rebelled against it. My mom and my father. And I was like, don't. This is the only form of. Um, I thought it was my, my, a form of confidence and self-esteem. Of course it's not, right? But it was the only place I felt uh, strong. Mm. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that's what a lot, so many of our addictive behaviors come from that place of like, don't tell me what to do. This is the one place that gives me a sense of control, agency, and power in a world that continually takes away my power. That's why we get hooked. And then the chemical addiction starts with like, the highs and lows of being able to feel adrenaline and then also control cortisol and then feel serotonin and oxytocin, the oxytocin from the social high, from that sense of belonging and accolades and validation from like looking a certain way or behaving a certain way. And we get addicted to that chemical cycle on top of the physical rush. Right. It sounds like there's so much interesting when you were talking about how like counseling brings shame upon the family, or we can't talk about, we can't talk about molestation. We can't talk about these things is interesting in my head and thinking, wow, you know, the majority of the molestation, you know, and again, this is, this is data. It's not me making a judgment, but the majority is, you know, from male to female. Right. And, and so we're really, what we're really talking about is this socialization to protect men, right? I mean, that's what we're, that's what we're talking about because it's absolutely. And then, and at every, at every point, that's kind of, you know, that's what you were socialized to do, right? Because it wasn't, it wasn't like you were protecting, you were protecting your mom from your dad's upset, right? It was not, it was like, it was this, it was, it seemed like we call it family, but really it's who's going to be, who's going to deal with it. Who's going to be in trouble. Right. And, and who is served by our silence, right? Whose power are we protecting by silencing our pain, essentially? Right. You know, and, um, and that's how rape culture and patriarchy are per- perpetuated. And, you know, in high school, I was stalked by a teacher, ironically enough, my psychology, my IB psychology teacher. Oh my God. I know. And this was when I was um, a senior in high school and I did bring it to attention. He started sending me these elaborate handwritten letters, like five to seven pages long. And he started calling me on different classroom phones. He got hold of my schedule from the office, meaning somebody gave him access to confidential files on this young girl. And he started um, like tracking me like an animal so that if I, you know, for instance, if I entered my English classroom, the phone would ring and it would be him calling from his classroom, wanting to talk to me. 
And again, this is like, it's so mind blowing to me now. I'm 37 years old. So looking back at my 17 year old self 20 years ago, as well as like me being assigned to the care and protection of these teachers who are failing at their jobs, because why do you hand the phone over to the 17 year old? Because this other man has called, like there were so many breakdowns of, of culpability and power, you know, and then I reported him to the high school principal who only confiscated the letters. And he said, thank you for your silence. We'll take care of this quietly and um, you can go return to class. And I went back to class with this, you know, predator and um, nothing was done. Like he, they announced that he would be leaving at the end of the school year. And they gave him this like glowing essay and article in the school newspaper and this glowing send off. He probably got like a great uh, benefit package and they just completely silenced the entire thing. And I had to spend the rest of the school year in his classroom while he would make these like sexual innuendos and jokes and all of the other students would be like, what is, what is going on? Um, but again, this was 20 years ago in, in Asia. What's interesting is like just, you know, a few years ago, I, so I had a memoir that was published in 2019 and leading up to it, there were numerous essays that I wrote having to do with the different stories that were in the memoir. And one of the stories is about this high school predator and how, you know, all of these things happened. And there were so many breakdowns of care and protection and power and abuses of power. And what was wild is the Guardian picked up the essay. It went crazy viral. It's like 300 views and counting. And lo and behold, my, like the whole community of parents and students and teachers in, in my high school now, just international school of Bangkok, like they got a hold of it. And there was like a riot. They were like, how did this happen? Like, we never knew about this. And they were like, we must protect her. And I was like, yo, it's like 15 years too late. Like I am fine. I built myself into who I am. I'm totally fine. And they were like, can we give you counseling services? And I was like, oh, wow. Where were you when I was 17? Yeah. 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 You you didn't have the guardian. That's where, that's where it was. Exactly. Like literally of, yeah. of all the newspapers to pick yeah. it up too. Yeah. So totally. I was like, I became my own guardian. No, thanks to you. Yeah. You know, and, um, I found my voice. No, thanks to you, to you and your silencing, <laughs> but it was, yeah. And there was like an international investigation. They tracked down this teacher who was like living in like another country. It was a whole thing. Wow. Um, they, they interviewed the, the principal and they interviewed other other teachers to like get their stories. And I was like, this is so not what I feel like doing with my time. Right, right, right. And this is probably not what you, you're like, yeah. no, I didn't. I wasn't looking for an investigation. I was trying to paint a picture yeah. of a, of a, of a, you know. Well, a, <laughs> and I was happy for the investigation, but right. I was also just like, you are taking up my time. Right. You should have done this when I was 17. Right. This you know, is for like, all the wrong reasons. I have a speaking gig to go to. Like, stop yeah. your BS. Go take care of the kids that you are supposed to be taking care of right now. Right. And I and I asked them for like, you know, money. And they were like, oh, no, we don't have money. But would you like therapy? And I was like, no, I'm fine. Go away. Like, I don't need your therapy. <sighs> I needed your protection. And then when, there, when that wasn't possible, I learned how to do that myself. 
you you talk about, you know, from there, it was clear that at that time you understood that this was not normal, that this was, that this was scary and all those things, right? Right. The only thing I, I did, the only thing I could, which is to get a scholarship out of there. Right. So you protected yourself. I think one of the things that's interesting is that you hear these stories and and I say this because I relate to it, right? You hear these stories of these strong, outspoken women. Hello, nice to meet you. I'm one of them. And we then we tell you a story of how we got into this, you know, domestic violence relationship, right? And and I, I have a I have a girlfriend who her name is Bayan and she was she's she's the second episode on the podcast and she is a bad ass. Yeah. Like doesn't take shit from anyone, amazing, smart, whatever. And she tells this story of the most horrendous domestic violence, like put, you know, stayed and went back. And and I think had it not happened to me, I would not have believed it's, do you know what I mean? It's like, I you're just like, how does that happen mean. to you? Because people experience you as, as the ref, this new reform, or sometimes even you're like, I'm being stalked. Someone help me. How is it possible that you then get into this domestic violence, this abusive relationship? And it, it speaks to the abuser, right? It speaks to the mindset and the, and the power of that. But I wanted to open up the floor for you and there for that segue, which was, I became my own guardian and then oops, I, you know, I landed in this place because of the priming that I had. Exactly. The priming and the decades of conditioning and the kind of toxic love that you're modeled as a child. Like all three of those things are factors in leading a woman or man into an abusive relationship. Like the social conditioning, the love we are modeled at home as well as any priming that comes into our life in the form of a predator. And um, sometimes all the, all three of those things are like braided together, right? And you see it at school, you see it on TV and you see it at home. So that's exactly what happened to me, which is like, I was a card carrying, I am a card carrying feminist and women's studies major. And the, my concentration and thesis was you're already laughing. I, I can't start say. It, well, and it's so I just I can't help but laugh because it's like, just like I've, I've literally written the book. No, I, I know. <laughs> I, it, it, it's and you were from when you were nine. You were like I'm yeah. not being, you know. But and then you went and studied feminist. But it's, it was a whole thing. Well, because it's like, perfect, so right? It's like intellectually, I knew all the things. Right. Intellectually, right, right, right. I wrote all the papers, <laughs> but my body and my heart we had, it was, it's like, we, we still follow the imprint of our parents, you know, or like whatever primary relationship or guardian we've been modeled for like toxic love. And so that's what I ended up doing. I ended up creating the same marriage that I saw growing up, you know, even though intellectually, like I knew it took me a while to like understand because I just thought it was normal because it felt normal to my heart and my body. Right. But thankfully in the end, it was my intellect and my writing that got me out because it was actually while I was in that abusive marriage where I started keeping a daily journal on my laptop. It was like encrypted with a password, which is again, in hindsight, right. You should not be with someone right, right, right. whom you think you need to encrypt like files again. Like this is, this is absurd. Right. This is not okay anyway, but I was just doing that. Cause you right. know, of course. And so I started creating, I started a daily journal 
digital journal to document everything that was going on in my then marriage to make, you know, first in case I needed some sort of documentation in court, um, also, you know, as one does. As one, exactly. As, as one, one does. does. Like naturally. it was so methodical. But again, I think it's like, I am so calm in the face of abuse because it was so part of my childhood and teenagehood too. Like, you know, calmly witnessing and investigating predators. It's like what I've been doing since I was young and like unpacking the situation and also something a lot of survivors of abuse and especially molestation, we, we really excel at dissociation. And it's a, it's a survival mechanism and it's for self-preservation of the psyche is we detach from the actual environment and we start look examining ourselves as though we are characters in a story. Mm-hmm. And it kept me alive, like, mm-hmm. like receding into my brain and looking at my life and the characters in it as though we are a story and characters kept me alive as a child. And then I made a career out of it. You know, like, and so, so in, in this marriage, I started creating an online journal and first to um, have documentation in case he were to grow severely violent and I needed testimony in court and we were living totally off the grid and meaning like deep in the woods, upstate New York, uh, surrounded by snow and no cell reception. Wait, so, wait, 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 wait. Oh yeah. I, I've kind of skipped ahead. We need to like do the help. The whole hold thing. on, hold on. Okay. Hold on. Yeah. Okay. This is why hold I like on. editing. Hold on. <laughs> you lived in the woods with your abuser with no cell phone. How did you get into the woods? So I know, right? <laughs> metaphorically, <laughs> metaphorically, literally. Yeah. So I would. You're like, I know. I'm going to go live with the abusive husband in the woods where no one can find us or contact. In the I mean, no isolation one. is one of yeah. those five totally. factors of an abusive relationship social and geographic isolation. So I met him when I was 25 in New York, and I was a, an actress and a model. I met him at a party, and he was gregarious and charming and larger than life. And, you know, he told me within weeks that he was in love with me and he wanted to marry me, as many, most abusers do. And I met his family within like two months of us knowing each other. And I, you know, he gave me a key to his apartment and he was like, just move in right now. And I, um, he became my world and he took over mine. And uh, yeah, and and I remember like jutting up against it in the beginning being like, no, like we're too opposite. You want to go buy this like half burnt barn in upstate New York. I have my career in in New York. I'm not looking to date anyone. Like that's that's one of the first things I had said to him when we met, which is at the party, which is like, I'm not looking to date anyone. And he was so aggressive and so pushy, which I thought was very charming because that's what I had like been that's what I had swallowed through high up through, through Hollywood. I was like, Oh yeah, he's very pushy. That means he wants me. This is a lovely situation. And, um, and so he just kept on like pushing and pushing for the first date, which became second and third. And then I moved into his apartment as one does. And so then I was like, no, we're too opposite. We don't want the same things. And he was like, look, let's just make it work. And then, um, Remember, so I immigrated to the States on a student visa, which then became an artist visa because my agents would sponsor it every year. My, and my um, visa was 
running out. It was a yearly visa and I was about to apply for a new one. And he said, look, let's just get married. Uh, you can take that like $3,000 you were going to give to your, your lawyer and put it instead toward the barn that I want to buy and rebuild into like a family home for you and our future kids. By the way, we haven't, we hadn't even been dating like three months, but I'm 25 and I think this is romance. And so and he was like, I, and also like, let's apply for your green card as opposed to getting another artist visa. Let's apply for your green card through marriage because I would love to be the reason why you're here. And I thought that was like the height of love. And I fell for it. And I had just turned 26. And, you know, he said, well, we don't have, let's get our house situated first. Let me refurbish this barn into a habitable home and then like we'll have a wedding and the whole ceremony and when we can afford it so maybe like next summer so we got hitched in town hall and we moved into first a boat and then like and then a car and lived outside the construction site for the majority of our relationship and um he stopped working on the barn and i was still coming into uh, New York to audition as well as babysit because I was making the bulk of my income. And I would spend like three or four days with the family I used to nanny for. And then I would spend either three or four days in the car. Uh, in, it, was a, it was a VW bus parked outside this um, construction site. And um, things just became like more like convoluted and complicated and all of the income I was making would just go into like the bills and the mortgage and the loans taken out for this barn and um, all of the labor that was going to the barn. And I started realizing like everything that my money was going into didn't, did not hold any trace of my name. Mm. Everything was under his name, including like my ability to live and work in the United States, you know, and remember like it was a women's studies degree that brought me to the United States. Like <laughs> I was the one oh, it's, it's, here. Like it's just it's poetic. So, it's poetic. And so that's, so when I started and so he stopped working on the barn, the loans ran out. Why did he stop working on the barn? Um, just, I don't know. You would have to ask him. He's in Greece right now with wife number four. Oh, okay, um, perfect. I'll, so, I'll get right know. on that. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, so I guess like, well, in his words later on, he said like he he just got so depressed and a sense of pur- purposelessness and it was so like overwhelming for him and he stopped working and that became its own like like purgatory for himself and from that like pain and depression that he was going through he started being more and more unkind and then abusive toward me and there was nothing i could do to make him happy anymore and so i started keeping this journal because like every day I, I realized the same dynamic was going on, which is like on Monday, I would be the apple of his eye. On Tuesday, I was the world's most cancerous tumor to him. And I was like, I remember this dynamic. I remember it through my childhood. And I started writing it all down because again, here we are living in a car and then a construction site, like a corner of a construction site in the middle of the woods without any cell reception or a neighbor for miles. And I knew how to control his moods and his temper because again, it was something I, I was raised to excel at. And so he never grew physically violent again, because I knew how to calm him down. 
and we were a match made in a perfect hell. And so I was keeping this online journal to create, you know, just day-to-day analysis of what was going on and to get a hold on my emotions and thoughts through his daily gaslighting because he would do something on Monday and then deny doing it on Tuesday. And so through the process of keeping this journal, it also filled me up with confidence and self-esteem in the most authentic way, which is I started to like literally read a proof of my intelligence and that I had a voice that I hadn't really used since college because I was, remember, I was a model and, a, and an actress and I got jobs by reciting scripts written largely by men to play the, gr- the girlfriend role. And so here, finally, after years of not doing this kind of work, but also the only papers I had ever written in college were like persuasive essays in, um, oh, and I had started saying like my thesis in college was on the history of violence against women. And so I, I was keeping this journal, but it was in my own first person voice, Hmm. which was the first time in my life that I had done that kind of writing. And I started noticing that I had this powerful voice and this poetic way of arranging sentences. And it filled me up with this authentic sense of self-esteem and self-appreciation that I'd never derived anywhere else because previously the only way I booked jobs was by looking a certain way, Mm. you know, and memorizing things written by other people. And here I was speaking through my own voice and my own intelligence and finding the truth beneath the story through my own tools, like through my own intelligence. And it was like, you know, it's poetic looking back, like thinking of myself, you know, this is when I was 27. So 10 years ago. And I came into, I started filling myself up with love and the more confidence I felt through my writing, the more I started speaking back to him and I, I started to grow and I, um, started using my voice and he started looking at me and saying like, you are not the girl I fell in love with. You've, you're changing. And I said, yeah, I know I'm growing up. I'm coming into myself for the first time, really. And I started pointing out the efficacies in his arguments against me. I started saying the word I'd been trained to never speak to a man, which was no. I started piecing together like, So initially I was creating just like a a daily document. And then I started connecting. I started going back to the beginning of my life and connecting the different things that had happened to me to, to answer the same question that you just posed, which is how did you, a seemingly intelligent, educated, bright young woman, find your way into the embrace of an abuser? How did that happen? How did you get to the middle of the woods? These were all choices you made. No one was holding a gun to your head, Rima. How did you make these choices? What happened in your past to lead to your present? And so that's what I started writing about. And I realized, oh yeah, there was, you know, a cousin who tried to molest me and I lost a piece of my voice and myself there. Then there was a high school teacher who stalked me and I lost another piece of my voice and myself in that process. I was raped when I was 23 and I knew I couldn't turn to anyone for help because no one would have the tools to help me. And I decided that instead of using time and money and resources to bring that person to court, I would be better off just sticking to my plan, which is go to 
wake up in the morning, go to your job, go to your restaurant gig, do your, go to your babysitting gig, you know, go to the auditions, just try to make it through another day to, to keep focused on the larger goal, which was to build a career as an actress, to be a voice for people without one. And all of these things, there were so many instances in my life where I swallowed my, another piece of my voice until I had become completely devoid of self and fell in love with a man who preferred me to be that version of myself. Like abusers are attracted to people who have no self because they consume us and they, they take like parasitic hold of us, you know, and we become so pliable and easily manipulated because of that. And, you know, in order to have a self-esteem, you need a self to esteem. And I had lost so many parts of me until I was devoid of self, but it was through writing that I started piecing myself back together. And I also used that journal. I realized like I'm kind of writing chapters of perhaps something that could become a book one day. And I started using those chapters to figure out his psychology And I realized that abusers thrive on three things, fear, anger, and the feeling of dominance. And that's why they do the things they do to us to derive a feeling of dominance, to draw forth our anger and to draw forth our tears and our sorrow. So I just completely disengaged because I realized like anytime I would say, stop being so unkind to me, I will leave you. I will file for divorce. He would say, well, I'd say that you committed immigration fraud. I'm going to get you deported. So I knew, and this is like that, you know, manifestation of abuse may be uncommon. And that's when I coined the term immigrant abuse, which is a subsection of intimate partner violence. A lot of abusers, and it's a subsection of legal violence, actually legal abuse. A lot of people, a lot of abusers use legal means and legal trappings to keep their victim in place from speaking out against them. And, um, I didn't know that I, I've been part of the literature who has that have brought the, these things to light in the last five, you know, five years. But at that point, I didn't know this. I was just like creating all of this literature on my laptop. And I so I realized, well, if I try to if I try to leave, he's going to make my life a living hell. Mm-hmm. And so I have to figure out how to get him to leave me or get him to send me away. And so I realized, okay, abusers thrive on these three things. So I'm going to starve him of these three things until I become absolutely unattractive to him. So I completely emotionally disengaged. And anytime he would try to make me cry and get that rush of power for himself, I refused him my tears. I refused him my anger. I refused to engage in any kind of cyclical argument. And I just kept on telling him like, whatever you feel like doing, just go do it. He would say like, oh yeah, if you, if you don't give me this, I'm going to you know, cheat on you. With, he would call them sister wives. And I'd be like, do whatever you need to do. Just leave me alone. And I would mm-hmm. just say it in that like flat, calm voice. And until, yeah, lo and behold, a few months of that, he, be, he evicted me from our house. And I've never been back since. I had two, uh, I was babysitting and he called me up. I was in New York City. He was in upstate New York at the barn. He called me up. And he said, don't come home. And it was a two and a half minute call. And I just felt enormous relief and release and gratitude. And I was staying with the family I nannied for. And so I had a backpack with two sets of clothing and my laptop. And um, I had just given him all of my money for the months previous, the previous month's bills. 
And I would make $60 that day. And I remember feeling so alive and free and grateful. I had my voice, I had my health, I had my freedom. And I had like a day's work. And I knew that the next day I would have another day's work. And I would just put enough of those days together. I would string them together and I would build myself into a new life. And that's what I did. Stay tuned to hear more in just a moment. Hi, it's Ashley Joe, producer of The Courage to Change. And I wanted to chime in and let you know about our new mobile app, Lion Rock Life. It is now available for download on your phone or tablet from the App Store or the Google Play Store. So here's the download on the app. The app is designed to streamline your online recovery experience, allowing you to view live meetings in progress, join meetings quickly, and build stronger connections in recovery. So whether you're newly sober, have many years in recovery, or you're in recovery for something other than drugs or alcohol, the Lion Rock Life mobile app has a space for you. On the app, you'll find alternative recovery meetings, and traditional meeting offerings. We have everything from recovery fellowship to community workshops, LGBTQIA+, women's meetings, men's meetings, 12-step meetings, and more. With over 75 meetings on our weekly schedule, you'll find a meeting that meets your individual needs. And with the app, you can personalize your recovery experience, join with privacy in mind, and recover with the support of an incredible community. Join us and find inspiration for a lifetime of recovery by downloading the Lion Rock Life mobile app today. If you have questions or need help, simply visit lionrock.life slash mobile dash app. Thanks. When he leaves you, so you, you said you got married in January, 2020. That's no January, uh, 2010, 2010. Right. Okay. And so you're, you're 27 at the time. Did you file for divorce from him? So in, in New York, you have to wait six months before you're allowed to six months of both partners being separated before you're allowed to file for divorce. And he and I, we decided like, let's figure, you know, let's get my green card situation figured out. Because in the end, he was very apologetic. And he wrote this beautiful long email to my parents and me, where he said, um, please forgive me for being so so emotionally abusive and for putting Rima through what I did. And it was this like long, really heartfelt email. And um, he went into therapy and he started making his amends, his amendments and everything. And um, yeah, so I filed for divorce about a, a year later. Interesting. Yeah. What do you think that change, why do you think he had that change of heart or he saw his part? Um, I mean, I'd been begging him for a long time to like go to therapy or to go to marriage counseling with me. And um, I think all of it together, like the pain of our separation, it gave him the impetus he needed you know? Yeah. 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 That's unusual. And and I know it's really, it's, it's a remarkable story. And like, so the, in the end, like, I think there's, you know, there's three types of relationships. There's, you know, the partnership along the whole year, the whole lifelong partnership. There's another kind of relationship, which like we go through for, to bring a specific purpose to light and to life, whether it's a child or 
a group of children, or to come into a new version of ourself. And without him, I don't think I would have ever discovered my writing because my writing came out of my survival instinct. Mm-hmm. I think if I had met a sweet young boy in my 20s and we got married and I would just live in safety and stability and a sense of belonging and unconditional love, I would have never found then I would have never been like forced up against a wall to find my voice to speak back to him. Right. You know, I, I like everything had to happen the way it did. And in the same way, like he needed to go through the pain of our relationship and the demise of it for him to seek the therapy he needed. Right. Right. Where did you, so when you say, you talk about stringing your life back together and, you know, you, you got into recovery and for anorexia, you, you put your life back together. You used this writing. What, what did it look like? What did that journey look like for you? Well, so, you know, I was kicked out of the barn and I had my backpack and laptop and I couch hopped for a few weeks and stayed with you know the family I needed for, I stayed with a few other friends and then he had an, a condo in Chelsea, in, in New York, and his tenant left, and I moved in, and legally, the spouse who evicts the other spouse is supposed to provide free housing, mm. but I knew that like if I didn't give him rent, it would just be another way for him to be on top of me, mm-hmm. so I gave him monthly rent as a way to like buy my freedom from him. And I was happy to do that and conscious that I was doing this because, because my stepdad would be, you know, my parents were saying like, this isn't, you don't have to give him money. I was like, oh, that's going to be a whole other can of worms. Yeah. And I would much rather pay for my freedom and my peace of mind. And so that's what I did. I lived in that apartment for two years and I continued to write and I didn't share anything. I didn't like seek an agent or anything. I just continued to write and develop my voice and get to learn my voice. And then I shared an, uh, an essay that was about anorexia and, and like piecing. And it was, it wasn't like a, like a prescriptive or health essay. It was just like chronicling how like a young girl can fall into anorexia. And it was like a poetic narrative essay. And I just, uh, published it on Facebook and people went wild about it. They were like, where, where did this essay come from? This writer is so amazing. And I was like, it's from me. <laughs> They're like, oh, we would, I, I, we thought, you know, you were just a pretty face, right? I mean, nobody said that, but that was inferred. People were just shocked to hear that this was my writing and my, except for my mom. My mom said, you have a book inside of you. Why don't you come spend the summer with us in Oregon? We live in Portland, Oregon. And um, yeah, your baby sister's going off to college just like spend as much time as you need, you know, move into her teenage bedroom. <laughs> and so I bought a one-way ticket out of New York. And in, in, the, in the memoir, like just as my mom was sending me that email, you know, to hear from your mother, like my mother is the great love of my life. You know, she was the first person for whom I used my voice. To hear her say, I think you have a book inside of you is like God reaching down and saying like, I think you can do this. I think, I think what you have to say has meaning and value Mm -hmm. and um, you can be more than what you set out to do. And, um, and the box that society like put you in. And, um, and I should also say like the choices of your past. She was like, I think you can make more intelligent choices. I think you can grow into someone bigger than who you thought you were. 
you know. And um, so I moved out here to Oregon, Portland, Oregon, and I ended up staying here. Yeah. And uh, it was, it just kind of like remarkably worked. Like at the same time as her, as her email came in, I got a text from my ex-husband saying like, oh, I sold the condo. You have to leave in a month. And I was like, perfect. Thank you, universe. And I moved <laughs> out here and I lived with my parents for about 14 months. And I developed those initial chapters into a memoir. And I started working at Kindercare, which is a daycare center, mm-hmm. for $12 an hour. And I started working as a cashier at Whole Foods for $11 an hour. And I was a crossing guard at, at an elementary school. And then I was <laughs> a reading aide at the same elementary school that my, my mom was working at. And then um, now she's an, she's an administrator. But like, yeah, I just like kind of strung together these four different jobs while I, while I was teaching myself how to write a book. I didn't, like, I was so new to this career and industry that I didn't even know there were things like writing workshops or writing centers or schools that were outside of the MFA circuit. And all I knew, I was like, I can't afford an MFA. Like that's $200,000 that I, as a cashier at Whole Foods, do not have. And I didn't want to take out a loan. And so I was like, well, I just have to teach myself this. And I was I'm so happy that like, I didn't realize it was supposed to be difficult And so like to break into the the writing and publishing industry, like Mm -hmm. I didn't know the numbers of like a failure of like how many books are never published. Mm -hmm. So I was just like, it can't be that hard. Like the way you read a book is you start on the first page, you go to the second page, you go through 300 pages. So that's exactly how I sat down to write a book. Like I told myself, okay, I'll, I'll do it in one calendar year. The sun, you know, the the earth orbits around the sun in one calendar year. So that's how many days I will need. Like I hadn't read anything that said most books are not written in a year. Most books are written over five or 10 years. Thank goodness. I didn't read that. Thank goodness. I had no one to tell me that, you know, it's like we, we become the identity we choose and we also grow to the limits or limitlessness we assign ourselves. Mm -hmm. And so I was like, I'm going to become a writer and I'm going to write this book and then I'm going to publish it. And that's like, lo and behold. <laughs> and so I started, you know, about six months into uh, writing the first draft, I started researching different write, uh, literary agents. And I made a list of 25 agents that I wanted to be with. So the way, you know, most people go about this is there's something called Publishers Marketplace, which is a website. And you can get um, a monthly membership is $25. So I gave myself three months of this membership to go through every single bio and website of every single agency and agent out in the world. And I made a list of 25 based on their bios. And um, I started sending out the manuscript to like the bottom five. And I used their feedback for to improve the next draft. And I did that in, in groups of five until I got down to Lisa or I went up to Lisa And I sent her draft number four and she signed me. And I remember still to this day receiving that email. I, my mom had just picked me up. I had finished a day at at kinder care. My mom had picked me up to like go. It was in November, 2015 or yeah, 2014, sorry. And like, um, or no, 2015. And we were going to go like, we went to the mall. Like we never go to the mall. I don't know why we were at the mall, maybe for like Christmas shopping. And I received this email and I was still in my kinder care uniform. And I was like, mom, I think my life's going to change. Somebody wants to represent my book. And she was like, yeah, 
<laughs> Obviously, I told you, you had a book inside of you. But like, we both were like teary. And like, that's, um, I had no publishing credits to my name. I had no social media platform at all. And she, she offered representation based on this, like the book I'd written, which is also very unusual. I didn't know this again. Thank goodness I didn't. Like I had sent her the entire manuscript and she read the whole thing. And she said, I haven't read writing like yours or a voice like yours. You have no <laughs> resume whatsoever. You have no social media platform or nobody knows who you are. I love your voice. Yeah. Yeah. And, and when did the book come out? Came out in 2019. So I spent those four years, the first year after we signed in November, 20, 2015, we went through like a nine month editing process to like perfect it. And during that time she was like, yes, yeah, so you should get published in other places. I'm like, like what? And she was like, you know, there are things called like online journals and websites and magazines. I was like, okay, send me a list, please. So she sent me like a BuzzFeed list of like the top 20 places you want to get published. And so I was like, okay, great. And I started writing essays and sending them out to these different places, building up a resume of uh, writing credits. Um, and then I started doing, I started cold calling and cold emailing universities and pitching myself as a speaking, for speaking gigs. But uh, what I did first, before I did that, is I spent about the same nine months that we spent editing the manuscript, I used that nine months to come up with different like scripts and speeches and topics that I could speak, I could speak like definitively and authoritatively on. And um, I just started writing and memorizing scripts. And then I started pitching myself to different colleges and different like writing centers and universities. And my first gig was at University of Oregon. My sister was in a sorority there and she was like, yeah, send like, let's get you booked for my sorority. And like, and I was, that's the time when I was, I had left kinder care and I was working just at Whole Foods. And, um, I said, you know, I'll, I'll waive my speaking fee. I didn't have a speaking fee. It was my first, <laughs> I was like, I'll waive my speaking fee if you can give me a professional level video. And so that's what, that was the bartering, uh, in, like incentive that I gave them. They gave me a video. I then sent that video to Northwestern. Northwestern hired me. I sent that video to the next college and so on and so forth. And I started building up my speaking resume. And so um, that's what I spent those like few years doing. And then a publisher bought my book in 2018. And by that time, people, like I'd started doing podcasts, interviews like this. I was on Dear Sugars with Cheryl Strayed. And again, it's like, <laughs> I guess I should, my friends are always like, you need to write a book about like hustle. Because one of the things I figured out was, you know, this was, I think what, you know, like on Instagram, you can set the notifications for certain people that you want to hear from mm -hmm, first mm -hmm. and foremost. So I, uh, while I was training myself to become a speaker, part of what I would do was I would just like read and watch every single interview done by any woman I admire. Like everyone from like Michelle Obama, Cheryl Strayed, Oprah, everyone. And I was just reading and consuming content, like video content, audio content, written content, because I was like, I want to reach these women. Like one day I want to meet Cheryl Strayed and tell her that your book, your memoir, Wild, changed my life. But I want to meet her as an equal and not a fan. 
mm-hmm. you know, and the way I get there is to use her as a faraway mentor. And I set up like basically a school for myself, you know, just because anyone can do that. If you're paying for Wi-Fi, there's so much content on people out there. Just read their, read their essays, listen to their podcasts, listen to their TED Talks, become a student of their mentorship. And so I went through this, the Shale Strade mentorship program and I had her on my notifications and she had Dear Sugars, like the award-winning podcast that we all know and love. Mm-hmm. And, um, and she sent out a tweet one night saying, oh, if you've gone through an emotionally violent, an emotionally abusive relationship, we want to read your letters and send it to Dear Sugars at NY." times.com. And I was, and I saw that tweet at like 9 45 PM. Uh, I, I remember too, like, so every night I say my prayers before going to bed and I was literally on my knees on the carpet of my, of my bedroom floor when I like saw this tweet notification and I was like, thank you. This is amazing. <laughs> and I, I like forward, I screenshot and texted myself the screenshot of the tweet as like to do my, the first mm-hmm. thing in the morning. And so the next morning, like I emailed and pitched myself to Dear Sugars and I said, I don't, because they weren't looking for like a guest star. They were looking simply for letters. And so I, uh, of people who are going through that right now. Right. And so I emailed and I pitched myself to be a guest star, <laughs> unsolicited. And I said like, here, I, um, I don't have a letter because I went through that experience a while ago. I do have a completed manuscript that's being shopped around that is agented. And I have an essay that I wrote. Uh, here's the essay. And I would love to be on be of service to anyone who's going through this. And I would love to, you know, I would love uh, the privilege and honor of being able to speak with you on this episode. And uh, they read the essay I like pitched to them. And uh, they asked me to be on that episode. And that episode came out in August, 2018. And it was the big watershed moment of my career because that led to the publishing deal that led to like so many speaking gigs. I'm still now the bulk of my readers and especially in pre-sales for I am yours, which came out in 2019. It was from people who had heard me, Mm -hmm. heard me on that episode of dear sugars. And I got to meet Cheryl as an equal and not a fan. That's so cool. <laughs> yeah. And it was just, you know, she's, she's epic. She's incredible. She's like beaming light from like every single cell. Um, <laughs> and I like, remember I like, you know, I memorized all of these talking points and made all of my notes and I went in and we like recorded it. And, you know, when people listen to that podcast, they're like, oh, it's very like precise. Like you had everything, you know, I can't believe you speak like that. That's like so meticulous. And I was like, well, it's a lot of preparation. Right. You have to train yourself. Right. You have to do the work. And it's decades of training that you hear on that one episode. Mm-hmm. Decades of preparation. That's why, like, the quote exists, you know, success is the intersection of opportunity and preparation. Mm-hmm. So accurate. And, and, and that is such a great representation of your life. You've been preparing. You've been going through your own almost like your own, your own boot camp, right? Like these were, this was your own boot camp, yeah. And, and, and I love that you were doing, you know, the feminist education as, as it was happening, you know, like it's perfect because you're, you know, they, we talk about in recovery often that the long, the, the, the longest distance, right. Is from your head to your heart. And oh my gosh. Yeah. 
And, and I know for me, as someone who uses dissociation as, as a, you know, as a coping mechanism and has for a long time that you can, you can intellectually understand something within an inch of its life and at every angle, and you can still walk right into it and, right and, into it. and, and not, not be able to control it. I mean, something we talk a lot about with regard to addiction and, and, you know, anorexia and any, you know, any, any disorder, right. I could be in the grips of a disorder of, of my alcoholism. And I could read the DSM. I could read the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. I could, you know, I could read all the literature that exists and that still wouldn't relieve me of my alcoholism, but it's such a great part of getting well of the process of the journey, because even if it isn't the thing that sets you free, it's certainly the thing that that guides your preparation to get there. And when you do get there and when you do have that, it makes that light bulb moment so much stronger. Like, oh, this is what it was. The, the, I remember talking about this. I remember what this feels like. And and you're, you know, you've just been preparing for all of these moments for so long. It's 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 a really beautiful um it seems, you know, from the outside looking in, it seems very seamless almost like, you know, I'm sure I know it doesn't feel that way. That's just like, I don't believe in coincidences, just affirmations that you're in the right place at the right time with the right person. You saying that is so special to me because my mom always says that my life has been a seamless explosion. Mm, yes, that's exactly yeah. it. Yes, <laughs> yes exactly. a seamless explosion. Yes, yeah. it's like, it's, uh, it's super, you know, it's, 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 it's powerful, but, but seamless. It's not, it's, yeah. it's not, it's not tragically messy the way. No, <laughs> you know? no it's, it's not. Still, it's still, it still has the grit, a, a but poetic... it's not, it's not gross and crazy. No. Like, like, no. like you know, mine is gross and crazy and, you know, whatever. And just I know. And hot, messy. And, and, and you, you're, you're very, it's funny. And, and I have, I have a lot of friends who have struggled with anorexia and, and many of them are this way and like poised, like ballet poised and, and, and put together and just, just thoughtful. And I think part of being so aware of your body and your being, there's a, there's a helpful aspect to that. Right. Cause I'm just right. like ham all the time, hot mass <laughs> express, you know, and it just, it's, it's, it's just part of who I am. And, and so when I, I, I very much notice like, wow, there's this seamless, like gliding through your life. And it's not that it's not hard and, 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 you know, grit and, but, but seamless explosion is such a great way to describe it. Thank you. I appreciate that. And I, you, you nailed it. And your wisdom, your wisdom is so effervescent and like obvious. That's why you excel at what you do. And you just like kind of charted the narrative and, and a description of a very accurate description of me. And I think the difference between like anorexia and other addictive behaviors is anorexia is about implosion and control of the self to like the finest detail like the, the ounces, you know, and I can tell if some, if like the tiniest thing is off in my environment and certainly my body. And because it's about like infinitesimal degrees of measurement. And that's why my speaking is so, like my speech is so precise. Um, The way I write 
and craft sentences is so precise. And uh, my partner, he calls it focused precision. And that's, that's what it is. And it's like, because I imploded before finding myself, you know, before piecing myself back together. And um, in the you kept the pieces in the same box, right? Yes. So like, and then you, I just, in, yeah. yeah. And then you rewrite. See, my problem is I explode all the pieces. They're in a different room. I don't know. <laughs> I, I got to put them back together. Like you, ex- you exploded your pieces into a like, oh, I'll rearrange them. <laughs> it's so amazing that you said like ballet and box. Have you read I Am Yours yet by chance? I haven't. I haven't. Because I'm one super of the, excited. thank you. Because one of the like ongoing metaphors is I have, put everything in the ballerina box hmm. in the ballerina music box. Yes. It's, it's and every, like the, you know, every single piece that breaks off, I put it in that box. And that's See? like a, one of the, on, you, I mean, yeah, that's Literally. what I asked. I was like, have you read no, it? No, no. You keep you it in the same box. It. You sensed yeah. it. Yeah. And, um, and, I, and it's also another thing is as a child, I was born with this. And then my mom my beloved mom, as well as my grandpa, my mom's father, my, gra- my, my grandpa was a poet. And both of them, and everyone in my family says I inherited from them, we have this like stubborn resilience and stubborn commitment to seeking out and creating beauty. And so if it feels like the way I tell my story has like a seamless continuity and connection, it's also because I am determined to find it, mm-hmm. to find mm-hmm. the poetry amidst the madness. Because finding the beauty, finding the poetry, finding the connections in an otherwise seemingly chaotic, brutal, horrifying, painful world, it's how we keep ourselves intact and moving forward. It's how we build ourselves back up after hitting rock bottom. It's mm-hmm. like this stubborn commitment to finding and creating beauty and to create a beautiful narrative out of the brutality of life. Furthermore, you you embody that in a different way in the sense that you spent most of your life getting that attention from the outside, right? And so you got people, you, you figured out how to get people to pay attention to your beauty on the outside. You figured out that that was how, how to do that, right? What's the, what's the recipe, you know, modeling, acting, here are the things. And then when, you know, through this process, by the time you found yourself, you, you, you distracted everyone, right? It's the, the beauty on the outside is the red herring because you, you then published this beautiful essay. People are like, mm-hmm. who wrote it? Right. Yeah. Who wrote it? You're like, I wrote it. Listen here. And, 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 and I love it because it's, right. I, I can totally see them being like, wait a minute. So you yeah. have beauty and I'd be like, girl, make the rest of us look bad. But you, yeah. you, you, you know, it's like, Hey, look over here. And then you give them right. this other internal beauty. You know, what's so fascinating. Thank you for all that. Like once my public, my, my essay started getting published and I started doing speaking gigs about my life and the different traumas that I have overcome and healed and found my empowerment through and like turning pain into empowerment is one of my ongoing themes and people time and time again, it's so wild because it speaks to how we are conditioned to view beautiful women. Mm-hmm. I have so many people come up to me and, 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 well-meaning loved ones saying, oh my gosh, I could have never expected 
or assume that you went through these things because you are so beautiful. And you <laughs> like literally you makes so, no sense. And I was like, how does that, I mean, I'm, it's still capable of like, you know, like I have no, that's not like a prerequisite to uh, protect oneself from pain. However, here's the thing. That's what society teaches us actually. Right. If you right. achieve a certain degree of perfection and beauty, you, that will become a protective mechanism against the vulnerable parts of life. Mm-hmm. And I write about in, in I am yours, which is, that's like part of like the formula we're supposed to aspire to become the perfect woman, find the perfect man, achieve the perfect body, achieve perfection in every single way, become the perfect mother, become the perfect wife, all of these things, the perfect daughter, and you will somehow shield yourself from the pains of life. But that is not true. Pain will always find us. And then it's up to us to figure out tools to overcome and heal and move past that pain. Beauty does not make you invulnerable in any way, in the same way that wealth will not protect you from pain. You know, privilege will not protect you from pain. No kind of privilege will protect us from life being lifelike. We protect ourselves through our character, through our grit, our resilience, our strength, our courage, our courage to change. Like that's why. Right, right. Our courage to change. But it is. Yeah. It's so funny. Like people, you know, I think I'm, I would bet people like say things and they're like, I just said that out loud. You or know? they don't realize it until oh, yeah. I write, I write the next essay. Yeah. The next essay, you're like, man, that was me. Uh, but, but the idea I have that, stopped doing that for the most part, the idea that you, it's like, I can't believe that happened to you. You're so beautiful. Like what, yeah. how does that make I have so many people logical sense. And people would say that in par- particular to hearing about me being raped. And then like, as though like, there's a certain like, like like I'm supposed to like look battered and bruised and right, right, right. Traumatized. And then similarly, like when they hear about like the kind of uh, relationship I went through in my mid twenties. That's very interesting to me. So because also if you think about it, like it's because for the longest time, the only trope we saw advertised was like this battered, bruised, you know, wife. Right. Right. Like that's what, like being in a battery. And so embedded in this, in this, this mental health recovery world. Same. Like it's not like us. I know. I I sometimes miss the boat on this kind of stuff. I'm like, wait, that's what we think. Oh, okay. Like I I just, I forget that the rest of the world sees things so incredibly differently. So differently. And and it's, it's remarkable. But I think what's, I think what's really cool is, you know, your, I think what's, this is probably not super politically correct to say, so I'm definitely going to say it. Um, yes, please. But, but I live I, for these moments. <laughs> but I think, <laughs> I actually think it's the, your, your looks invite them in, right? Invite them in to like, I'm going to, you attract them in with your looks. Great. Now they're in the seat. Now they're going to listen to what you have to say. Right. So it's the best. I'm, I'm my best Trojan horse. Right. Right. Yeah. Trojan horse. It's exactly right. Male view. Oh, a hundred percent. I'm like, yes, there was a woman on YouTube that she used to do the naked, she would do this topless. And it was, I mean, it was like, her nipples were blurred out, but it was like this topless thing. And she was talking about news, real issues. That's amazing. And I just thought it works. I I mean, more viewers than, and it was like, yeah, just, and bring this idea that 
I'm like, yeah, use what you have to use to bring them in to get, to get the most amount of people. And, and I just, it's perfect. It's absolutely perfect. Like, okay, now sit down and listen to what I have to say. I mean, that's why like celebrities are, you know, hired by the United Nations to become ambassadors for things Mm. like refugee crises. Like that's why Angelina Jolie excels at what she does. Right. Because she's mesmerizing to look at. Right. And we love listening to her and watching her. Right. And then she is a perfect vehicle for change and a perfect right. messenger for a message we all need to hear. Right. I mean, th- there's been, I mean, Audrey Hepburn came 40 years before before Angelina Jolie became a UN ambassador. Audrey Hepburn was a UN ambassador. She was actually the reason why I got into acting because my father is a retired United Nations diplomat. (laughs) And I was like, oh my God, this is perfect. Look at this perfect doll-like woman Mm -hmm. who speaks so eloquently and people will actually listen to her on important things that matter. And I was like, I think I can do this. And my father was like, that's exactly who you should become. Mm -hmm. Lo and behold, this is what I look like. There you go. This is what happens. <laughs> like, I love it. Obviously, that was my origin story. Whatever gets you to, you know, whatever gets them tickets to the show, it's it's it doesn't it doesn't matter how the message gets to people, no. right? Like our goal in recovery and in the mental health community and all of this is mm-hmm. to change the narrative. And absolutely we need people out there talking about the narrative. To be in service of something greater than ourselves. Yeah. Like that's it's it's the only thing. And you know, when, when I talk about, you know, those early years of writing and I do a lot of webinars and classes on, on writing and how to create a writing discipline. Mm-hmm. And I always say like my writing mantra, uh, con- to construct sentences, but also to keep yourself going and returning to the page every single day, especially as you're chalking up re- rejections is service overrides fear. When you're wondering, how do I get through this chapter that it's about like, you know, painting the scene of being sexually assaulted in order to get to the place of healing and empowerment that this character went through. Remember service overrides fear, the fear I'm feeling about this paragraph. I will get through it. If I focus on the woman who may pick up this book seven years from now, who too went through something as brutal as I did. And this chapter may be that, 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 that one thing that un- unlocks her power, that helps her find her voice again. Service overrides fear, always. Because service is the only reason to get up in the morning and do anything worthwhile. Mm-hmm. Other- and we lose ourselves when we forget that or we haven't learned that. Like, I think pessimism comes from not realizing we were all born to be of service to each other. Pessimism right. comes from this feeling of like being marooned in a chaotic world that has no rhyme or reason. There is a rhyme. There is a reason. We are each other's rhyme and reason. We are each other's poetry to be mined from the pain. Yeah. And, and, and staying connected to your community is a really important piece of that, which has deteriorated over the past, you know, year and a half, two years, whatever. I don't even know how long it's been. And, and I think bringing that message back to community connection, um, service, bringing that back into the daily practice of our lives is, is really important. Even if it's in that small, those small disciplines you're talking about connecting to ourselves, connecting to other people. I think what once was considered, um, self-improvement is now, I think, mandatory self-care, right? Like yes. it used to be, it used to be maybe more optional than it is right. these days. But it, it's still like, 
it keeps us, I love that you said it keeps us connected and reminded. It, remind, it reminds us that we're connected to a larger community, especially as we're going through quarantine. Last yes. year, so I Am Yours came out in 2019. In February 2019, I was basically on a year-long book tour because my speaking gigs are, were attached to my book tour. So I just kept on traveling for a whole year, which was an incredible blessing and opportunity. I got to meet thousands of readers and and people who had been following my work for years and rooting for me. And I got to hear how the book and the essays and podcasts, interviews, everything had played a role in their lives. It was beautiful. And then I came back home, you know, January, 2020. Mm -hmm. And, um, and during the process, like, so my dear sugars, uh, episode, it was found by a woman named Dara Resnick, who is huge in, in TV and producing. And she's a huge TV writer as well as a producer, executive producer. And she reached out to me in 2018 and said, you know, your story is my story. I would love to read your memoir once it, once it's out and to help you adapt it into a movie. So we started doing that in 2000 and the tail end of 2019 and then into 2020. And um, everything was like so amazing and extroverted. And then the pandemic hit. And everything was just kind of like, okay, well, these are still going to happen. The movie's Mm going to happen. The speaking is going to happen. But right now we cannot see each other. Right. And this was before I adopted my puppy, Fia, who's on my lap right now, as you can see, Ashley. Um, And this was before I met my partner. I met him at the end um, of 2020. But for the entire first year of the pandemic, I was sitting in my apartment by myself. Uh, with all of these canceled speaking gigs and canceled teaching opportunities. Mm-hmm. And I went back to that place of like 17 cents in my bank account. And I was like, huh, well, the great thing is I know this feeling and I know what to do now. Mm-hmm. I've always relied on my intelligence and my voice to get me out of a hole. And that's what I will do. I was like, I am literally not allowed to see anyone and I have no work or income on the horizon. I will write a book. And so I wrote a novel a dystopian novel called Pyramida, which is half of it is set in 2020 during a pandemic COVID world. And then the other half is set in the year 2100. So 80 years from now. And it examines what could happen if two female scientists were to discover a world-changing, world-saving vaccine, and they came into unfathomable power in a post-Trump era and wanted to use that for political gain and to create a matriarchy and after the demo- after like seeing the, the destruction that a political patriarchy can reap on the planet. Like, and I, I just asked myself, like, what would I do if I were to come into power unlike anything I've felt before with something that saves millions of people? Would I use it as an opportunity to create a matriarchy in place of patriarchy to save my children, to protect the people I love, to use this opportunity to create a better world. And I'm like, yeah, why not? So that's what, that's what the novel is about. And paramita means perfection in Sanskrit. Fia has seen somebody uh, walk outside. How She's dare protecting they? you. She's yes. protecting me. Yep. By the way, for anybody, for people who cannot see her, she is a six and a half pound chihuahua. <laughs> she's wearing a bright red sweater right now. And she's barking at a neighbor who had the audacity to walk in front of the house. Unreal. Can you believe it? <laughs> Can't believe um, it. Death, I, death by match. tiny drawer. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, 
So anyway, so I, but again, it's like writing this book that is about the human condition and, and it's about women trying, mothers trying to save their children and to create a semblance of a future and continuity and safety out of the destruction of the, and like the near demise of a planet. Like all of this kept me connected to a community that I always know is out there. Like the human race is always out there and available for us to connect to. And we just have to find different ways. And it's through, you know, lassoing our voice out into the world, whether that's spiritually or artistically, creatively, to find creative ways of being connected and in service to each other. It's how we make it through every single day and every single month. And that's certainly what I did for that first year of quarantine. Writing that book kept me alive. It kept my brain activated and, and intact. You know, and I wrote that novel in the course of five months. I knew that, you know, and I had three different girlfriends who were my readers for every single chapter. They too were like totally alone and marooned in their individual lives. And they were like, please, I need something to look forward to every week. And we midwifed this book together and um, it was completed in, in, you know, five months. And then I realized like, okay, it's too triggering to try to send it out to agents and publishers now because we don't have a vaccine yet. Mm. And I realized like, okay, I'm going to wait for a vaccine to come into play. And the moment we're all vaccinated and feeling some semblance of security and safety, that's when I'll start shopping around the book. And so that's where I am now, actually. And um, toward the end of, um, so, and so I finished writing Paramita in October, 2020. I gave it a once over read through. I started writing it in, in, on April 6, 2020, I finished on October 5th, 2020. I gave it a month-long read-through and revision process. And whenever I do my revision process, that's when I look at it as an editor as opposed to the author who's inside the book. And I look at myself from this like objective lens. And I start interrogating myself as well as the manuscript. And I ask myself, like, Rima, why are you so concerned and concerned with and passionate about looking at the world through the, the first person eyes and lens of a mother. That's my, my main character. She's a mother. She's a 40 year old scientist with two kids that she's trying to save. That is her driving impetus. She wants to invent a vaccine that will help her kids live. It's the purest want in the world. Love. Right. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, why do I have a feeling like I know this woman's voice so well when I myself am not a mother. And then I was like, oh, Rima, it's because that's what you want. And I had taken five years of complete abstinence from dating or texting or flirting, like nothing at all from 2015 to 2020. And I was like, I think I'm ready. You know, I'm going to go, I'm going to try to figure things out. And I was like, well, I can't find him during a pandemic. That's ridiculous. <laughs> you know, I'm like, well, you know, the pandemic will be done in like January, 2021. I'll think about things then. Right. Lo and behold, little did I know. I was like, but I can take one step toward creating a family, which is I'll adopt a puppy. So then I adopted Fia in November, 2020. Fia completely softened all of my walls. Mm -hmm. And she was like, come on, mom, you can do this. And so then I downloaded Bumble in, De in December, 2020. And um, lo and behold, I found him. So and awesome. it's like, here we are, you know, nine months later, almost 10 months, and we're deeply grateful and in love. And um, yeah, I, uh, it's wild, like, 
But again, it's like kind of a seamless explosion. Like totally now that you, you, yeah. you totally know it. Oh you, my like, gosh. You're like, oh my gosh. Of course she it worked the book. out this way. <laughs> yeah. She writes the book. I had to become, yeah. yeah, I had to become, I had to go through the things I needed to go through in order to yep. become, to discover my voice in that deep state of pain and loneliness. Mm-hmm. And I had to hit rock bottom so I could piece the pieces of myself back together and find and create, become a woman of my own and create myself through my own voice and my own opinions and my own trajectory. I had to do that journey completely solo without the opinion or help of anybody else. I wouldn't be who I was if I had been partnered with someone during that process. Right. And then I had to spend five years alone to become who I wanted to become. You spent. And that's when I was ready to find him. You you were grounded. What you I was you, grounded. You were grounded. You were on a plane talking about your past, which would not have changed. You would have been on airplanes in places talking about how you got there, and not yeah. talking about where you're going. Right. So oh, you were forced. You were you were spending all that time on airplanes connecting with people about who about who you were, and and you had to get into a room by yourself to figure out who you were going to become because mm-hmm. your whole life was based on who you had been, right? And yes. who you had created. Exactly. That's all you were talking. I mean, I have this experience when I go and talk totally. about my, you talk about it, you talk, you're like, oh my gosh, you know, you talk, you do it. It's a lot, you but, know, but you, you talk-, talk about it's, you're talking about your first and second act, right? And you find your person in your third act or you start the third act with them actually. But if you're focused, if you're so focused on who you Mm -hmm. are or who you were and who you have been up to this point, it's hard to make that transition because people are giving you accolades for who you are today, not who you're going to be. There's no, there's no push to be something different because everybody's saying what you are is so fantastic. Right. 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 And I was like, so done with the, I am yours story in the best way. Right, I was like, right. I am done talking about yeah. being a survivor of exactly. sexual assaults and domestic violence. Like it gets, really you get detached it. from it. Right. And you get, and it's so I'm like, you, I'm not that woman anymore. That was 10 years ago. But until the plane grounded until the, until, until the flight stopped and you stopped going and talking about it, which was out of your control. Why would you give that up? Right. right. You weren't able to do this book, which by the way, you hadn't written a, a, a novel. You, you were right. So it's not in, it's not like a normal, like, oh, well, she wrote another memoir, you know, or whatever. Yeah, so you novel, write, yeah. right. You write this about a mom and then it's, it's seamless explosion. It's, I, it's ridiculous. It's absolutely <laughs> ridiculous. You. Cause it's, you're brilliant. Thank it's you. very, it's, it's very disciplined the way that you are, right. Thank it's you. very and, disciplined. And lo and behold, Dara, who had been the woman who you know, reached out to me, the TV producer, powerhouse, brilliant woman who shares a lot of the same things that you and I do. And she, and when you were saying about like how so many people will be like, how are you this powerhouse? But you've gone through this like ridiculous backstory. Dara gets that every single day. Right. And because she's hugely successful and a self-made woman. And then she's like, oh yeah, by the way, 10 years ago, this thing happened to me and it blows people's minds. But she reached out to me on it was December 14th. And she goes, by the way, I'm talking to a few different producers at this production company in the, in England, and they want to finance a feminist TV show. That's like about, you know, some sort of social justice narrative. And of course I thought about you and I was like, I've never written a TV show in my life. And she goes, but you can. And she, and at that point she's like, you know, I, 
you've written a TV, uh, you've written a movie uh, with right. me and I've read, I've read your memoir four times. I know you can do this. Would you like to pitch something to them? And like, I'm like, okay, sure. Like when she was like, oh yeah, next week. And I was like, okay. And so I put together a TV pilot and it's called snap and it centers on a young indentured servant from Indonesia who works for a billionaire, billionaire Chinese American family who is asked to be the egg donor and possible surrogate for her employer, which is, that's part of my past story too. Like I went through a similar version of that in my twenties. That's like a whole other thing. And um, I pitched that on December 28th and they bought the pilot. And so then like suddenly again, but it's like seamless explosion of like, of like, of course it had to happen like that. Who pitches on two days after Christmas? <laughs> well, the best thing is, so <laughs> my partner and I, we had our first date because we, we met on Bumble to, on December 19th and then okay. we're quarantined, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's Christmas mm-hmm. week too. And um, we had our first date on the December 27th, which is my, my mom and stepdad's marriage anniversary. And we had, our, we had a nine hour long date as our first time meeting face-to-face. And then the next morning, like I go back home to my, my, I was staying with my parents that week because it's Christmas and I gave that TV pitch and, um, yeah, it all just happened in like, again, seamless explosion. But like, I remember being like, this is going to be such a different relationship than any other relationship I've ever been in because we are meeting as equals. Right. Um, I have my voice and I'm not about to lose my voice through this relationship. You know, um, I am meeting him as a fully constructed person and vice versa. Like we are not at risk of losing ourselves and each other because we arrived and met as fully complete, independent human beings and adults. Yep. It's one of the many benefits of when you meet like later on, you know, in your late thirties or early forties, when you meet your partner, then you both have, you both know who you are and you're, you're these individual you can be individually powerful without threatening each other's voices. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, it's in, you know, as I, I got married when I was, oh God, 28, seven. Gosh, I don't remember anymore. That's sad. And, you know, started dating my husband when I was 23. And it's interesting, you know, you really do. It is a challenge to grow together during those times, during, during all those years. And you do, you sacrifice some of what you there's, there's sacrifice in times that you don't want to do to, um, you're, you don't want to do that. You it, at yeah. times where you're just like, I don't, I, you know, I don't want to have to think about the big picture. I just want to be me and do those things. And so there's, it's very interesting. There's a whole, I think there's a whole other tangent there on, dating and how we choose life partners and how we choose, you know, the, the, this, this idea of romance being the representation of marriage, which romance is not marriage, (laughs) right? Right. But that's how we choose partners, right? Yes. So it's a, it's a false, it's a, but it's all of us are sold that false narrative. And I think, you know, again, it goes, it goes back to like, what are we conditioned to think about and do? And are we conditioned to grow into a relationship or are we conditioned to grow into ourselves? Oh, that's powerful. That's brilliant. He and I, we always talk about like, well, I brought up how in, you know, and I mentioned it earlier in, in the, in our recording, which is when I met 
the man who is now my ex-husband, like I resisted even going on our first date with him. Like mm-hmm. I knew I was like, all I kept saying was like, no, I, this is not what I want. This is not what I want. And then like everything felt so overwhelming. And, um, I, I was doing things like I would lose my phone after a date, hmm. which is like, again, like not like me, or I would <laughs> drop it in a mug of tea. I was just, he clouded my vision, but also because I was still so, so susceptible to being clouded. Like mm-hmm. that was my choice. You know, he mm-hmm. was my choice. And with my partner now, I come into deeper clarity with him. Right, 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 right. And vice versa. Like we don't cloud each other's vision. We become better versions of ourselves through the proximity of each other, not through the consumption of each other, but the proximity of each other and each other's partnership. And I think that's what true partnership and true love is about is like true love is where we find more of ourselves, not less of ourselves. Like we go there to become more of ourselves instead of less. And we don't create this couple by compromising pieces of who we are, but by becoming deeper versions of who we are. And it's not supposed to be one plus one equals one or you complete me. Oh my God, those toxic narratives we've all swallowed. It's like, no, it's supposed to be one plus one equals infinity. You become an exponential version. It's so funny. I, I, my husband, so my husband and I've been together 12 years and, and we have these conversations regularly. I, I, I don't really eat meat. I, you know, I'm fairly passionate about not eating factory farmed animals, not really against the food chain, but more just like torture, you know, I'm mm-hmm. anti-torture. Totally. And, I'm, I'm um, vegan. Okay. There you go. So you get, yeah. So, and my husband has decided, has done, has went from recently has picked, gotten into, um, wanting to, if he's going to eat meat, he doesn't want to eat factory farm meat. So he's going to hunt his own food. Hmm. And we were having this conversation and I was like, what? Like, (laughs) what? You know, it just absolutely, this is a guy who takes spiders outside, right? Like this is a guy, this is, is so off the radar. And we were having this conversation, how the funny thing about being with someone for a long time, if you want to make that work is, you have to have skills to allow someone to mm. do and try something and be something, even if it's not part of your plan narrative or anything yes. you expected. You have, I I mean, thank you. I, I honestly like have learned this like in the last 10 months because it's the first real safe and equal relationship of my life. And when, and because I'm in this space, I'm learning all of these breakthroughs that I'd never had before. One of them being like, because I think it's only in the presence of someone's safe embrace and love that we do our final healing as well Mm -hmm. as like the best growth of our life. Right. Because you're not in survival mode. You're in abundance mode. You're in evolution mode, right? You're just in growth mode. And one of the things I've learned is like, you know, enmeshment is so bad. (laughs) And it's when we start personalizing everything and everything our partner says and our, that our partner does. Like, I don't have to personalize everything he does or says or who he is. And, and because that's also, it's allowing another human being to have complete power and ownership over you in a way that's not healthy for anyone. It's allowing someone in a and allowing someone, you know, and he's the father of my children, right? So it's, it's even deeper, right? It's, and I, and so I've had to go through this, this weird, you know, kind of 
consolidation of emotions, right? Because the first thing that happens is they get defensive. This looks, you know, you're making, how does this make me look? How does this, what are you going to teach my children? I go into all of these fear-based places and I, and then I your doom spiral. I call it the doom spiral, the doom spiral, right? Right. It's ego. Um, and then I realized, you know, we were talking and I said, Oh, I didn't, I said to him, I didn't see this coming. And, and, and so, right. So I didn't see this, like of all the other things, you know, he very much, he gets into something for a while and then transitions. He's like very, you know, focused on a hobby or whatever, and it becomes everything. And I said, you know, this is just one I did not see coming. And, and my expectations of another person in my, my relationship, right? Like there's this ownership, there's this, and the ability to love someone and support them in their transformation, in their change, in their truth, without having to like it yes. is so <laughs> growth forcing. <laughs> right. And it's, <laughs> oh my it, God, it's, I'm like, oh, I didn't want to grow this much. <laughs> and you're like, and you know, it's, it's a tenet of unconditional love. Right. And it's authentic, authentic love isn't conditional or transactional right. or based on you must adhere to my preconceived expectations of you. Oh my God. It's so right. And the preconceived like narrative we've already planned out for the next five years. Like, like, wait, 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 this doesn't work with my narrative. And it's like, hold on. But it's like, exactly. It's like, but that's again, like that's when you know that, I mean, I think real love, we're constantly vulnerable to someone in a way that's both empowering and so powerless. Right. Right. You know, and powerless. Right. Yeah. But empowering, not disempowering, right. but powerless. And it's about just like surrendering that I'm not going to try to control you because that's the opposite of love. Right. And I'm not going to make everything you do or say about me. And I'm like quite, his, his choices are his. Right. And, and for, and, and I, at first it was just about not discouraging, right? Like not being an a, an a-hole and not my easiest thing either. And, um, I was like, Ashley, shh be quiet, <laughs> zip, zip, you know? Right. And then, and then it was about like, it, I, I went through stages and now it's about seeking, you know, we talk about this in uh, the prayer of St. Francis, mm-hmm. we're talking about seeking to understand it's, can I seek to understand, do I love this person enough to seek to understand them even when I don't like something? Yeah. Well, one of the things he and I talk about often is like curiosity, not control. Right. Curiosity. Exactly. Don't assume. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Curiosity. And it's hard, you know, 12 years in, you want to say, I know what you are. I know who you're supposed to be. You know, there's a, Mm -hmm. there's a lot of like, there's a lot of falling into things in a relationship in a marriage and in anything. And again, the, this, this constant growth model that you and I, right. That's our life. We have a growth model here yeah, and, a growth, uh, and a growth mindset, but it's a good, yeah. So you can tell them. I love it, it so much. You know, a growth, our growth model says we're going to try to do what's uncomfortable, even when, even when we don't want mm-hmm. to, and we probably require discomfort to continue yes. on this growth model, right? We're not going to just oh settle gosh. for the rest of it. And so, I mean, I just, I'm, I'm such a fan of what you're doing and, um, I, I love, I, I wish I could be as seamless as you are, but the world needs hot messes like me. I Uh, will always love you exactly (laughs) how you are. And I will always need you in my life 
because of the way you are. So thank you. I appreciate that. Likewise, likewise. I, 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 uh, I, I have accepted, you know, I've accepted my, my explosiveness. It's just a different style. But I think it's, it's a, it's another type of art form, you know, it's like another artistic way to do life and we need it all. We need it all. Um, we need it all. I, um, this has been such a pleasure and a Likewise. gift to do. Thank you so much. And I, I feel really like we could, well, I mean, we've already spoken for two hours. We could go for longer Forever. and longer yes. because we just entered the third act conversation, which is totally. like, because one of the things I'm so passionate about talking about now, and I love that you brought it up first, which is after you've done the survivor story right? and you're like, well, actually I'm, you know, you're like, I'm yeah. actually in a really successful marriage and I have two <laughs> kids. Like, I'd like to talk about that. Cause that's, and even right. like more courageous story than the first in a way, you know, in some it, ways, yeah. In some ways, like it yeah. requires so much work and wisdom every single day to show up as your full self, as a mom and as a, as a partner. And, um, and it's the, it's, I think it's like, I, and, and it's, we need more conversations on that. I think. I, I agree. I agree. It's much easier. It's much easier. You know, as a, a IV heroin addict, it's much easier to change your life when you're about to go to jail or die than it is when you're just pissed at your husband in the next room, right? Like the growth, the growth motivation, very different, right? Very, very different. I am much more motivated in, in deep, pain from, you know, trauma and survivor than I am motivated to grow. And it's like, well, you know, it's the same things that got us through recovery though. It's like focusing on gratitude, right? It's the same thing with love, like focusing on a relationship and getting through the messy or tough moments to realize like gratitude drives love as much as love drives gratitude. And, you know, and we know that from recovery, gratitude drives recovery as much as recovery drives gratitude. Yep. Yeah. And to show like, and gratitude is the antidote to fear. Like anytime I start, yes. we talk, you know, about the doom cycle that we go through or yes. being like, this was not part of the plan. This was not part of the narrative I had assigned you. God, so I, I, like I, I remember to day. like, I come back to like the love and gratitude I feel for this person for being who he is and the love and gratitude I feel for myself and to become the woman I am. And yeah, right. I think that gra- gratitude saves us every day. Yep. Yep. And, uh, it's, it's, and grace, right. I'm just mm-hmm. like, Oh, so I hope someone grants me the grace I'm about to grant you, you know, <laughs> <laughs> just that, that feeling right. of, uh, mm-hmm. okay, here we go. It's just another lesson. Right. Yeah. Well, I really, really appreciate your time and um, you. it's been wonderful and I would love to stay in touch. I can't wait to see what all the things that you have in store. Cause I know it's, it's going to seamlessly well, explode. Thank you so much. It's going to be come. the novel. And then I'm working on the second memoir, which is called I am his. Do so, you have um, a website? I do. Rimazaman.com. I'm very easy to find. Actually. Okay. Good. Yes. And then there's the Ted talks and all the things. Well, yeah, I had a TED talk that came out last year, which was actually about my five years of celibacy and like (laughs) why I did that too. Like it was about choosing to date my ambition Mm -hmm. to become the woman I wanted to become. And so there's all of those things are very, just Google my name and I am there. Awesome. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you so much. Everything will be in the show notes. Really appreciate you. Thank you. I appreciate you. Thank you for this opportunity. And the gift of your presence and company. (laughs) You're so kind. Thank you. Thank you. This podcast is sponsored by lionrock.life. 
LionRock.life is a recovery community offering free online support group meetings, useful recovery information, and entertainment. Visit www.lionrock.life to view the meetings schedule and find additional resources. Find the joy in recovery at LionRock.life. <laughs>